Following is my conversation with architect Christopher Locke. This is the Kathleen Sessions podcast. To support this work, please visit the sponsors in our show description, subscribe to our YouTube channel and on your favorite podcast app, and visit us at thekathleensessions.com. And now, my conversation with Christopher Locke. What is your impression on the current state of architecture? Good question, Kathleen. Uh, many ways to answer it, but I'll take on the challenge of answering that question by trying to break it down maybe in a few different ways. I think for the profession of architecture, at least for the work that I've always been interested in, there is the responsibility of existing in a very political world in, uh, in, in, in a form of architecture and science that is about buildings, which is, in my opinion, political. And then there is the ongoing climate issues that are related to the carbon footprint of buildings and how we can be efficient with that. And then lastly, there is the challenges of how do we ultimately create a profession when you look at architecture just as a profession and, and those who experience it and work in it, how do we make it equitable? And I think when, for the work that I've had in my experience, you know, and also you can add academia to that, which I know is one of the questions that you were interested in. But I think when we look at the state of architecture, there's a really big challenge in understanding where our work as a profession and when we work with our clients and where we work with communities, who exactly are we serving? And the end goal and the end work of our product, it always lives in the public domain. And there's been assumption for a long time by a lot of architects who have been either privileged or have had the space to kind of have the freedom of design to do whatever it wants to do to impact space. And the reality is, is that I think in the last two years since George Floyd's murder and many other political contests that have happened in the last two years, we've now come to realize that architecture, buildings and space fundamentally have to respond to people. <laughs> they first and foremost have to respond to people. They have to respond to the climate that we live in. And I think for a while there's been this understanding that or feeling that it's architecture is apolitical. It has nothing to do with these things. It can live and it can breathe and it can be an object in space. But the reality is that architecture does indeed have to respond to and understand the politics of space as it relates to people, power and privilege. I think when you look at architecture as a profession and working in it and for the last seven to eight years, there has been a push to not only diversify what the profession is doing, but also making sure that the profession can be equitable for the long term of those who work in it. And I think the challenge of architecture and how we deliver the work to our clients, our communities is always in conflict because there's always the person that you're serving who's paying you money. And then there's also the community that you're also trying to make sure it has a voice in the project. So the work that I do at Steinberg Hart and at Design and Color, they both challenge those things. You know, as a profession, how are we ultimately making sure that architecture is being delivered in the best way it can, in a way that it's being educated to the general public and to our clients, while also making sure that we're being efficient with how we deliver the work. And it's, it's a profession that for a long time was white collar, it's very much uh, the white man pr privileged, you know, who gets access to it, right? That's very much what the profession was about for a long time, but it isn't anymore. 
And if we allow more people to get access to it, how do we change the way we practice and how, how do we ultimately get the work to a larger generation and larger uh, scope of people? You shouldn't just be able to hire an architect because you can afford it. You should be able to be able to work with an architect because you need to. So just like, again, I'm going to keep digging into the personal for you from very from a very personal, right, right. just personal perspective off the cuff. What makes for great building design? Like just what's your like from your heart, from your gut answer to that question? Great building to design design to me com combines a really strong understanding of arts and culture with the science of how a building can be successfully constructed. I think when you can put all those things together with a strong understanding of what it means to artistically and aesthetically represent something that's beautiful, basing it in an understanding of how people use that space or how somebody is emotionally emotionally changed or emotionally impacted by that. I think when you can really allow architecture and design to see it through that ethos, rather than it just being um, material, rather than it just being things that we just see as tangible, it's to me the intangible things is what make art makes architecture great. And great building design to me really responds to not just what we think looks good to us as like the architect or the client, but it also looks like, what does it look like to a larger body of people? And that we, we know that design is not a, cons is a consensus. It's really a response in the time to what we see available to us in our communities or where that specific site is. But I think when architecture is able to, we use the word timeless, is able to look back at it 50 years from now and really see that it was being innovative, whether it's because of its technologies it was using, um, but also because of the way it is ultimately aesthetically responding to a community. I think when you put those two things together, it's important. Um, you mentioned earlier about considering the fact that buildings are in the public realm. This is a this is a theme I keep sort of coming back to that every time a building goes up, you know, whether whether it's a private home or a larger building, whether that's a multifamily building or a library or a school or a hospital or an office building, it it is part of and impacts the public realm. Um, and I think that's kind of what breaks my heart, like looking, <laughs> I guess, I guess looking over the last, well, I don't know exactly know how long it's been, but it, I feel like we've sort of lost a sense both as, um, whether it's as architects or designers or the clients, the developers, the, we, we've lost a sense of responsibility about that, like thinking about it from that lens that, um, uh, and I know that part of that is the, is the pressures of capitalism and the fact that we have to respond to costs and that it's, uh, yeah. So any, any comments you want to make about that? I, you know, and, and that's where it gets really challenging because I really care about justice and belonging in architecture and really using architecture as a vehicle for social change. And it gets really difficult when we only rely on the, the product. And that's a word that gets thrown around a lot now when we talk about architecture as product. And that's partially because there is a movement and there are some people within the design prof professions want to be able to capitalize 
on the ability to mass produce architecture, right? And that's something you see a lot happening in, in, in Asia and other countries that are able to say, hey, we're going to build this thing and it's going to be done and erect in about, you know, 120 to 180 days. And someone's going to live in it and hopefully they're happy, right? The other way to approach it is to respond to community, which is challenging. You know, in the work that I do in community organizing, it is not, you know, this weekend I was doing a project uh, community uh, meeting in Watts for a community space project. Um, it's a community center. And there are people who've lived generations and generations through uh, a specific housing project that's no longer there, that's being redone and updated and, 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 and given more access and resource to community. But there's just so much history there that not everybody gets a part of the conversation. So when people respond and say, hey, you know, I was never talked to about this. There's this really big challenge to like, what is the process actually doing to, 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 to invent and create new architectures, new spaces and new buildings for people to experience? And sometimes it's not just what's the new, it's what was already there. And I think one of the things I've learned in, in doing community organizes communities no matter what color creed response that they have to space, they already know what they want and how to design, how they experience culture, which is ends up being the phys physical manifestations of the buildings and the spaces that we all enjoy. And when we look at public, the public realm, or when we look at publicly engaged spaces, or even challenge what the word public really means, because somebody always owns something, right? I think it's really important that we consider that, hey, it's not just the product, it's the process. And how we got there and how we share that with people and how we're open about that. And the key term to me is vulnerable, not just the vulnerability of it, but the transparency of it to show that, hey, we didn't do this as great and we're, we can do this as great is also important. It's hard to do, especially when you have clients and you have other people who are very much involved in the city and very much involved in the politics of space, which is also the politics of a city, which ends up being the politics of how things get done and how money gets exchanged, which then impacts how you design and build a building with codes. It gets so damn complicated, but it really takes strong leaders who understand how to challenge that and aren't afraid to challenge their clients and aren't afraid to challenge the people that they work with to have new solutions. I agree. And I, I do want to circle back in a little bit to the, the financial component and the way that projects get funded, um, the financing of construction, the financing of development, because I think this is a huge part of the, the um, equation. But we'll circle back to that a little bit. Um, so what drew you what drew you to being an architect? I read some interesting things, some interesting comments that you've said before, but what initially drew you to architecture? Well, you know, I want to be a movie star, so, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't quite know where architecture fits into that, but seriously, you know. I, There's still potential for that. <laughs> hey, I, cinematography, I think is more interesting than now, maybe because of the architectural visual things that I do. But, you know, I think for me growing up, I I didn't meet a black architect until honestly grad school. Like I might have ran to some at public events, but I actually had a serious conversation to one of my professors, one a few of the professors that I had at University of Michigan. Not even undergrad. Didn't didn't see him in undergrad at University of Massachusetts. And before that, 
what intrigued me about architecture was the idea that you can physically do something that will last for a very long time and, and exceed your existence on this earth. And that was something that was very personal at the time. I think as I've grown in my career, what draws me to architecture now and what keeps me engaged into it is the ability to be stewards of communities and to be someone who is in step with people to help see the greater vision of what a space can be. And for me, that's very much about righting the wrong of what communities and people have been wronged. And it's the, it's the, it's the amplifying of voices that have been historically silenced. It's the bringing the opportunities of design to people who never had it before. And growing up, my dad was a laborer. He worked in construction. I mean, my dad's like 82 years old. I'm 31 in a few weeks. Do the math. There's a big gap there, right? So I saw my father even at an older age because he worked all the way until he was about 70 uh, doing construction and labor. And now it never was a one-to-one correlation between, you know, you know, the relationship between now son doing architecture, doing the drawings, and now father was the one of the laborers doing all that stuff, right? So, you know, my father growing up, he came from Jamaica at the left at the age of 19. He still to this day doesn't know how to read and write, but he was able to have six kids who are now and, you know, went to school, various different things, you know, from to go from that to me having a master's degree and having this conversation with you today is a part of that story and a part of the journey that I bring with me. But it's also the motivation to do something greater than me. And that's where I think architecture allows you to do, because I could go work at Google and create a product that somebody enjoys. But with spaces and buildings and the process of how we do our work, which is where I'm most interested in, we can fundamentally start to change how people experience things, how they're educated and what they do with that education and information to go impact other people. It can become very infectious. The work that we can do can be very infectious and it doesn't have to just be about somebody moving into a unit. It could be something much greater than that. And I think that's what always drives me and brings me back to what I find interesting about architecture. Because if it was just simply money or for his other things. There's other professions that provide that much more greater. But I think the cultural aspect of being able to leave something that's so much bigger than yourself is what's always drawn me to it. Talk a little bit about your educational experience as you, um, your journey, your journey to become an architect and, um, and how that maybe, uh, you know, shaped your current thoughts on architecture and building design and who you are in the world? So that's a good question because that's 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 the reason why design and color exist. <laughs> um, so why don't we pause there for a second just to say what did, you know? Explain your organization a little bit. Well, so, yeah, Design and Color uh, was a platform that I created right after leaving grad school in 2016 uh, with three other individuals um, and now six individuals that challenges the way architecture is taught and practiced to amplify marginalized identities and communities who have been silenced in the architectural design process. So that looks like community organizing. That looks like how do we do installations and artwork within communities to give them a space to express themselves. It looks like how do we really break down the different scales of architecture to impact other people. And it ultimately also looks like what does that look like when we put justice at the forefront? So then that the process could then 
and end up um, impacting the product of the work that we create with architecture so that it better serves people and communities. And that looks like workshops with clients, with professionals, with universities, with academia, with workplaces, so that ultimately as individuals, we're not just using what we learned in school because what we learn in architecture school is a very European Eurocentric architecture and design education that takes a lot of the Bauhaus and a lot of the original understandings we know from the 1930s and 40s and still uses them today in a world that's very different. It's very much about understanding the Corbusier's and the Richard Myers and the, I mean, the list is so long. Venerating those architects leaves so many, many more out of the history. And it, 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 uh, it also leaves so many other cultures out of the history. And it, it allows only the white architects of the time, mostly male, to decide what architecture is good and what architecture is not. So a lot of my education that I experienced in school was very much that, you know, we, we did, we, we, we never really talked about what is it, what does the word identity mean in architecture? Not just from a personal standpoint, but from the things that we're producing. How do they project identity? How do they ultimately challenge how we see each other in space? How do they, how does architecture protest? You know, what are those things, right? And when I was in my thesis, I didn't have the support of that. I didn't have that from professor. I didn't have it from the partner that I worked with for many different reasons. And I did a, a, a project this, this semester before that was called Streaming Blackness, which was me using film and architecture and design to explore what does it mean to have a black identity in architecture, but also in a geopolitical space? What does it mean to look at that, not just as a black Jamaican American, but what does it look like to look with, to, to challenge that in, the, in the, the context of Africa? And then how do we look at well, all the different things that are impacted in that from a geopolitical standpoint? So how is oil extracted out of Africa? And then what does that do in terms of money and a changing of capitalistic hands from China to Russia and et cetera, et cetera? So these are some of the things that I was challenging my education. But when I went to the following professor and I didn't have the following year, I didn't have a professor who, who supported that. It really stymied, stymied my growth. So following the next few, you know, summer, the, the, the summer, I, you know, it, it really kind of took me back. So I had a professor who um, was one of the few black professors at uh, the University of Michigan Tommen College who said, hey, you know, go to NOMA, which is the National Organization of Minority Architects, and talk about what you experienced. So me being me, I gathered a few friends. We started this thing that was just called design and color it wasn't even meant to be an organization it was just meant to be a one-off workshop that got me out to la after selling my car and just going the one-way ticket route and the rest is history and you know it was really well received by a multi-generational group of people anywhere from people in high school or those who just graduated school or still in school those who have owned own firms for 30 years and that's the beauty of when we look at the cross section of architecture, right? We talk about drawing sections all the time and how do we, what is the innards of this thing? Like, how does all these things connect connect together? When we take a cross section through our profession and we look at who are all these people and who who has who hasn't gotten access to some of the to, to, to some of the ability to express themselves or access to some of the work, we then find a very interesting amount of knowledge that's not just innate to architecture, but people's 
personal and cultural and generational experiences. And to me, you know, my journey in architecture has been how do you uncover those and then turn them into space? How do you then uncover those and turn them to an experience that changes somebody's life? How do you uncover those and then change the way you work to respond to the people that you need to impact in a community or with a client? How do you be charismatic, but also emotionally engaged and vulnerable to show that, hey, I'm not just an architect who's pushing paper. I'm also very much a, a community member, a steward of the work that you're interested in doing to help solve the challenges along the way that we didn't even know were possible. I want to be able to, with the work that I do, not just today and in tomorrow, but I want to be able to cover up possibilities that we've never seen before and innovate things and ideas that are beyond our wildest dreams. What I find interesting is that those roadblocks that you ran into during your education end up being springboards for you to really have not you probably had the passion anyway, but it found expression through you because of those roadblocks at, at during that critical like time period of your life. Do you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, you know it's it's funny you say that because there are a lot of people who go through that and they leave the profession. I mean, the amount of black and brown architects who are licensed in the profession is so small. You know, it's like it's like 0.5% for African-American women and it's 2% or 3% for blacks across the profession and like six or 7% for Latinx indented by individuals. And then it's less for women as a total. But there are a lot of people who dealt with what I did and left the profession, just called it quits. She said to hell with it. They could have been a mother who then came back to work and then realized that the profession doesn't allow enough space for them to do the work they need to do. They could be people who left school and left with this education that told them that they can make this kind of impact or do this kind of work and got into the profession and realized that there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of prejudice and bias. There are so many people who have left the profession who are talented and that we don't have making the work that we want to do today as a, as a collective, as a community, as a world, as a country. Where my experiences have differed than that has been I've had the passion, but also I've just had the foundation just in my beliefs, my support system, my belief in God, and then being able to just find ways to manipulate my bad experiences and turn them into something positive. And, you know, I lost my sister about three years ago, almost March. And I know she's watching and I know that I have a responsibility to also uplift her legacy because she was a big part of uh, who I am. So I think in looking at culture and looking at communities and looking at space is very much about having a responsibility to make sure that the people around you can be successful. And I think that's what drives me. How do we, how do we solve for that? How do we solve for the lack of diversity and voices in the field of architecture? I mean, I've got my own thoughts, even in, in the world of development, but mm -hmm. If we, if we focus specifically for a moment on architecture, why, so why are there, why is there so little diversity and how do we solve for that? You know, it's a question, especially in the last two years with, with more people being open about how do we protest for design and how do we protest and advocate for representation in the profession? Um, and it's, it's, like, it's like a cycle, like every few years this happens and then it kind of dies down because the greater white majority in the profession just loses interest, quite frankly. When we look at how do we change the diversity within the profession, there's 
many ways in which it's been discussed. So there's the pipeline, get more kids at an early age. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't know about architecture or even meet a black architect that looked like me. So I knew that it was possible until college. Um, get people more exposed to it at an early age so that they have the opportunity to choose. The challenge with that is architecture education is cheap. You go to school for five to six, sometimes even seven years, um, depending on what school you go to, and then you come out not making as much as say what other people would do after putting in so much school. So it's hard to tell somebody who comes from a disadvantage and background on a scholarship or, or have to take out student loans to then go to be an architect. So we have to make access to the profession and pathways different. So it doesn't mean that maybe you have to go to architecture school. What does it mean to be an apprenticeship, which is how architecture started? You apprenticed underneath someone and you learned and you learned. You didn't necessarily have to go to school. You had to have the knowledge and understanding of how to participate in the profession, but you didn't necessarily have to be trained. You learned on the job. So what if we went back to that model to give more people access to doing it? And that's one thing that I've been super intrigued about because in the state of California, at the very least, you don't need a professional or, or a degree to actually become a licensed architect in California. So there's a few other states that are like that. And I do wonder if there's a way in which more people can get access to the profession by giving different pathways that is just outside of college. It's maybe community college and college courses in addition to working professionally and there are some conversations within NCARB, which is the National Registration Board of Architecture and some other other things that are looking to manipulate the system in which we give more access to people. The second problem then is we can get all these people in the profession, but what the hell are they doing when they're there? Do they feel welcomed? Do they feel like they belong? Is there a pathway for them to become the next managing partner of this company? Is it, is it easy for them to open their own practice? What is involved in that? Architects don't get a lot of business acumen, um, which you might realize, Kathleen. Um, don't get a lot of business acumen up, up front. So there are a lot of different ways in which we work that can sometimes be a little confusing, but also, unfortunately, as a profession, sometimes puts us in a difficult position in which we lose money. Some of that, we get taught to put design first, and sometimes we don't get taught to put uh, profitability first or how to combine the two so that we're making sense of our work. And we end up working a lot of hours, which sometimes is not necessarily the best case for the work that we're doing. So when people are in the profession who are not the majority, how are they being supported? Are they given opportunities to grow? And I've seen and I've worked at companies where somebody who was black or brown was been there for 16 years and they had the same damn title because they've been avoided and haven't been given the opportunities to grow or even been pushed. Instead, they've been, they've been avoided. It's easier to avoid the challenge of making sure somebody is challenged and given the opportunity to grow than to participate in that person's career sometimes because you feel like they meet that quota. You have your one, you have your to you've tokenized that person to be existing in your space. So, it's also important to give space and give opportunities for people who are minorities in the space or have been minoritized, have the pathways to be successful in the work they're doing and also bring their identities into the work or also bring their, their histories or their, their interest in it and not just making them fit into in a box within a corporate or a, a work profession. I think the last thing 
that I think also is important is the educational part of it. We have to be able to give students, and this is really across education as a whole, empowered to be able to, in, to impact and do what they want within um, their education within academia. Because once you come out of school with that, that, that confidence, it really changes what work you're, you're, you're creating. We're not just repeating the same thing that we're doing with a modernist design from 60 years ago. We're also able to critique that and also create our own and new things. This is why, you know, in the last, I would say, five years, there's been so much great work that's been produced by people like Deanna Van Buren uh, and Designing Space Design Justice or Brian Lee Seeley Jr. and what he's doing at Colocate, in which they're combining the ideas of justice, architecture and design to create new spaces and be able to challenge students so that they understand that you don't just have to go work at a company and be a head designer and just design things all day. There's so many more ways to practice architecture. And one of the things that Design and Color preaches is how do we as a whole redefine what architect is? Like, what does that really mean? Who gets to Who gets the agency to say so? And at Steinberg Hart as a whole, every day, that's something that is a challenge. Like, who gets to own the architecture? Who gets to do it? And how do we collectively work together? And that's a challenge as a company that we're always going after and, and growing ourselves and whatnot. So I think that's one of the big things that, as a profession, we have to get on the same page about. And it's hard when everybody and every group and every organization from the large firms like, such as the Genslers or smaller companies like Steinberg or, or the two to three person firms, which actually make up most of the profession. Um, it's hard for everyone to, to, to do their part and be on the same page. And I think we have to find a way to work together. What are a few things you wish more young people knew? Just in general? Or more people, yeah, about in general or yeah, in general. That's, that's a good question. The thing that I'm always reminding myself just to enjoy the journey. The destination is not important. It's what you do along the way. Um, that's what I'm I'm constantly reminding myself. You know, I have ambitions for my career at Steinberg Hart. I have ambitions for my what I want to do eventually when designing color becomes my full time gig. I have ambitions for what it means to be a father. I have ambitions for what it means to be a husband. I have ambitions for what it means to just be a citizen in Los Angeles. Um, to be a, a child of God. I have all these different things, but you can't achieve everything at the same time. Instagram ain't real. TikTok isn't real. Like social media isn't real. All the things that we project is the best, is the things that we want people to know and see about us. You know, they're great to look at. They're great to like. But the reality is, is that we have to enjoy the journey because once we get to a destination and it might not be the one that we want, we better be happy with what we ended what we ended up doing along the way. And I think, you know, having older parents, my dad being 82, my mom being 60 this year, um, being around older folks in general, you kind of hear the stories about how people got to somewhere and they're quite fascinating, especially immigrant stories. They're quite fascinating to know what people had to do to get the opportunity to come here or go to other countries. And that journey is just so important that's where life is really made. It's not getting the multi-million dollar house. It's not getting the incredible job. It's literally what you do along the way. And for me, the people that you meet along the way and who you enjoy and who you and let into that, 
like who you let into your life to enjoy you on that journey is so much is so rich because those are the people who are going to allow you and to lift you up when you need it the most. Christopher, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you, your perspectives. You infuse me. You infuse me with energy and and new ways of thinking. So thank you. Likewise, and thanks for uh, working with us. I'm intrigued to like experience this next phase of design development with you. It's going to have twist turns and just interesting decisions along the way that I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to experience with you as well in my career. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation with architect Christopher Locke. This is the Kathleen Sessions podcast. To support this work, please subscribe on our YouTube channel, your favorite podcast app, or visit us at thekathleensessions.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone.